Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Very good. Very good. Uh, so I want to begin by thanking uh, Chuck and the, uh, the session to allow me to preach once again. Um, if you weren't here the first time I preached, uh, well, you missed a great sermon. <laughs> um, so I'll be, I'll be probably teaching or preaching uh, a little bit more often in this uh, upcoming year, and instead of randomly just selecting text from the Bible, what I decided to do is preach from a whole book of the Bible, and I chose the first letter of John uh, because it's been one of my favorite books in the New Testament, and uh, according to Chuck, it's never been taught at Christ the King, so this will be the first time that, uh, that it'll be taught here. So whenever I'm asked to preach, I'm just going to continue wherever I left off the previous time I preached. Okay, so let's go ahead and open our Bibles, if you have your Bible with you, uh, to the first letter of John, chapter 1, verse 1. I'll give you a moment. If uh, you don't have your scriptures, it is printed in your bulletin, so you can follow along. First John, chapter 1, we're going to go down to verse 4. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so let's go ahead and, uh, and begin with asking who exactly wrote this letter. Um, most of the New Testament letters, the author of that particular letter will identify themselves as either Paul, Peter, uh, James, but with this particular letter, uh, the author never identified himself, and so we kind of got to ask ourselves who exactly is writing this letter, just because it bears the name of John doesn't necessarily mean that John wrote it. But church tradition does or has described the letter to John, John the Apostle, well, one of the twelve uh, who was with Jesus during his lifetime. Now, because the letter is not addressed to a specific church, uh, scholars do believe that the letter was meant to be circulated among the churches of John's day, probably the same churches that are mentioned in the first few chapters of Revelation. Uh, now, before we proceed, let's go ahead and answer a few questions from John's prologue. All right, so who or what is this word of life that John is referring to in verse 1? He gives us an answer in the following verse when he says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was, ma and was made manifest to us. So, this life is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus states in the Gospel of John, Jesus states, I am the truth, the way, and the, and the life. All right, so no one comes to the Father except through me. So now that we've identified who this word of life is, Jesus Christ, our next question should be, who's this we 
that John is referring to. Okay, now only a select few had the honor of being in the presence of Jesus on a daily basis. Here, John is making his authority known by saying that he was one of those few who had the immense privilege and honor of hearing, seeing, and touching life. John wants his readers to know that he wasn't a Johnny-come-lately. He had walked with the word of life and experienced firsthand what it was like to be in God's presence. Now, are any of you a fan of the History Channel? Yes, there is a show on there called uh, American Pickers. Anyone heard of that? All right, so American Pickers is basically a, a show about these two gentlemen that go across or around the country and they go into junkyards and antique shops and things of that sort to find valuable possessions that they can kind of refurbish and, and sell. So a couple months ago, I believe it was back in August, um, they found what they believed was Aerosmith. You guys are familiar with Aerosmith, the band? What they believed what was uh, Aerosmith's original tour van from the 1970s. And so the problem with that is that the van on the side of the van had the name Aerosmith and it had like a picture of some like hippie type character. Uh, but they couldn't authenticate if it was a really the van of Aerosmith. Um, so the owner of the land, where the, apparently this was in the woods somewhere in Massachusetts where they had, found the, uh, they had found the van, and the owner of that land said that the van had been abandoned for, for some decades, and he was ready to sell the van. His, the only problem was he didn't know, uh, again, if it was the van that Aerosmith had back in the 70s. So somehow, one of the original members of Aerosmith uh, went down to the site where the van was located, and he was able to authenticate that that was indeed the van that they had used during the 70s on their, on their tours. So with that authentication, the buyer or the owner of the land was able to sell the van in good trust, knowing that an original member who had actually seen the van, touched the van, and actually slept in the van could authenticate and say, yes, this is indeed the van that Aerosmith used. So this is basically what John is saying here in, in this prologue. He's saying Jesus Christ was indeed God incarnate. He came to this earth, and I myself am a witness. I touched him. I heard him. I saw him with my own eyes. All right, now I don't have a, uh, an outline per se, but if you look in your bulletin, the uh, name or title of the sermon, I named it Prologue, and it says... Truth equals fellowship equals joy. That's pretty much the structure that I'm going to use. And we'll start with truth. Now, at the time that, the letter was, that this letter was written, one of the heresies that began to spread was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the ancient Greek word meaning having knowledge. Now, it's unknown exactly how Gnosticism began Nonetheless, it did begin to create some confusion and discord among the Christian community of John's day. Now, people who uh, adhered to Gnosticism believed many things, but three of the things that kind of stick out are uh, to achieve salvation, one needs to get in touch with secret knowledge. Another thing they believed is that uh, there is no such thing as sin, only ignorance. And they also believe that all matter, all created matter, included human, including human beings, 
was evil. So, as a result, Gnostics believed that Jesus didn't really take on human form. He had just appeared to do so. This is why John puts a lot of emphasis in the first three verses where he repeatedly states, we have heard, um, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now John makes sure that his readers understand that Jesus was indeed God incarnate and that he himself was an eyewitness along with the other apostles. John knows that doctrine affects life. If we have a warped view about Jesus, it will affect the way we live. Now, once upon a time, I believed in the Jesus that came to give me an abundant life here on earth. And um, it affected the way I lived. Obviously, uh, when you are indoctrinated with such a belief that Jesus came to fulfill all your wild dreams and fantasies, and then something happens in your life, anything less than an abundant life, there's got to be something wrong with you. And so that affected my Christianity. You know, at the time, I was going through some, some trials, and I swore, at least giving the inward look, that I, I had all my moral P's and Q's in order, so I didn't understand why Jesus wasn't giving me this abundant life that he had promised, or at least I thought he promised. So having a correct view about the person of Jesus Christ will definitely uh, affect affect the way you live. All right, so since Jesus is cruise incarnate, John makes sure that his readers understand it is vital that they know who Jesus is. Cruise will breed fellowship not only with the triune God, but also with each other. Well, let's go ahead and move on to fellowship. So John goes on to say that he is proclaiming this Jesus so that his readers may have fellowship with one another and also with the Father and Son. Now, last time I was here, or last time I preached, I should say, uh, I mentioned that mere socializing is not the same as fellowship. Coming together to talk about our weekly endeavors, current events, sports, the political climate of the country, the stock market, or the latest blockbuster movie does not constitute fellowship. Now, this is not to say that socializing is wrong. I mean, socializing is a means by which uh, we come to know each other, and there is a time and place for it. However, we must not confuse mere socializing with fellowship. Now, in his book, True Community, Jerry Bridges writes, In our Christian circles, the word fellowship has come to mean little more than Christian social activity. It may mean the exchange of pleasantries over coffee and cookies at church or the social functions of our high school and campus ministry groups. This is not the meaning of fellowship in the New Testament. It kind of stings, doesn't it? Wait, it gets better. <laughs> Bridges goes on to say, those first Christians from the day of Pentecost were all Jews. They were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, but as they listened to the apostles' teaching and were enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they began to see those scriptures in a new way. They were daily gaining a new understanding of them, and as they individually learned from the apostles' teaching, they shared with one another what they were learning. This is fellowship, sharing with one another what God is teaching through the scriptures 
And this is an important part of true community. How different is our present-day concept of fellowship? Take those typical times of coffee fellowship. We discuss everything else except the scriptures. We talk about our jobs, our studies, our favorite sports teams, the weather, almost anything except what God is teaching us from his word and through his workings in our lives. If we are to regain the New Testament concept of fellowship within the community, we must learn to get beyond the temporal issues of the day and begin to share with each other on a level that will enhance our spiritual relationships with one another and with God. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I went to Chick-fil-A, and if anyone that knows me, that's not a surprise. You knew I was going to bring up Chick-fil-A at some point. I'm a, I'm a Chick-fil-A connoisseur. So a couple of weeks ago, I, um, I decided to go to Chick-fil-A before work and get some work done before I actually went into the office. And um, as I went in and I sat at the booth, um, there were these two young ladies in the booth next to me. And they looked at me, I looked at them, and we gave each other this look like, I know you. You know, you, you know that look when you recognize someone, but you're not really, you, know, you don't really remember where from. So anyways, I sat down, and sure enough, one of the girls turns around and, uh, and asks me, or tells me, you look familiar. And I said, well, yeah, you, do, you look familiar too. And the other girl asks, um, did you go to so and such church at some point? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. And everything started coming back. So um, we, you know, we just started talking a little bit, like how, how are the kids, uh, the family, how's pastor so-and-so, and whatnot. Eventually my food came out. And I started eating, and I mean, they're right behind me, so I'm hearing their conversation, right? I'm not eavesdropping, I can just hear them because they're, 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 they're talking loudly. So I hear them talking about, you know, the, um, the adventures of being a, a housewife and the struggle of dealing with toddlers and exchanging recipes and... Uh, you know, eventually they get to talking about the members of the church and whatever. All right. <laughs> so eventually I open up my laptop and I, and I start working on things I need to work on. Uh, 90 minutes later, 90 minutes later, whole hour and a half later, I'm getting ready to leave. They're getting ready to leave as well. And as I'm walking to my car, I start thinking, wow, that whole time that they were there, they were there before me, so I don't know how long they had been there. But... Um, I never heard the word Jesus. I never heard them talking about scripture. Now, I'm not being overcritical about what they were doing. I'm not saying that it was wrong, you know, that they were there and talking about whatever they were talking about. Um, but I can guarantee you one thing. I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet that later that evening when their husband asked them, what do you do today, honey? They probably said, well, all that Chick-fil-A fellowshipping with sister so-and-so. Because that's what we perceive as fellowship, right? Now, if you consider yourself a Christian and you're willing to spend 90 minutes of your time with me in a holy place such as Chick-fil-A, I can guarantee you I'm going to bring up Jesus at some point, right? It's just it's going to happen. So, <clears throat> what does it take to foster or cultivate meaningful fellowship with one another? It's not that hard. Simply asking one another, what book of the Bible are you reading this week? 
How is it challenging you? What insights are you gaining from the scriptures this week? Now, sadly, too many Christians do not read their Bibles. They just don't. As a result, we get this shallow fellowship that we see nowadays. So, it's important, vitally important to read the scriptures daily, daily. And if you're not doing so, I encourage you to do so. That way, when we come together, we don't have this shallow fellowship and just asking what we did during the week. We actually have something substantial to say. Some other questions that you could ask each other, not necessarily Bible reading, but you could also ask each other, um, who's on your prayer list for the week besides yourself? Um, What doctrine is giving you the most trouble when you read Scripture? Double predestination, all right, let's go ahead and uh, grab some coffee and let's go talk about it. Or who are your top five theologians dead or alive? Now, if you ask me that question, that's like asking me who are my top five favorite rappers, right? (laughs) Initially, I'm going to ask you, well, how much time do you have, buddy? Because I can go all day with my top five theologians. So questions of that sort will enhance our spiritual life. It's going to encourage our life to be able to speak about truth because after all, truth is what we all have in common. We all, have, we all come from different backgrounds and whatnot, but truth, truth in Jesus Christ is what we have in common. And that, my friends, should bring us inexpressible joy. Now, um, Jerry Bridges in his book, uh, True Community, goes on to say that Fellowship, uh, cultivating spiritual fellowship is, is a relation that we have with one another. It's not an activity that we do. It's life on life. If you guys have attended uh, the journey groups, that's exactly what fellowship is. We come together, we discuss theology or the Bible in a way that's, in, that's more practical, and that breeds joy, that, brings, that breeds fellowship. Now, speaking of joy, let's go ahead and move on to the third part here. John concludes his prologue. Uh, when he, John conc- as John cl- concludes his prologue, he gives us the first of many reasons of why he's writing this letter. In the fourth verse, he says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, joy is one of those biblical commands that we tend to overlook. That's right, I said it. It is a command. The scripture teaches that joy is something God expects from us. And I'm not going to take the time to make the argument that happiness and joy are two distinct concepts, as some evangelicals tend to do. In the scriptures, happiness, joy, gladness, delight, and even the word blessed essentially mean the same thing. I say essentially because there are some nuances, but essentially... All these words, when used in Scripture, are used synonymously. They all basically mean the same thing. Now, every now and then, you will hear a good or well-meaning Christian say, God is not concerned with your happiness. He's concerned with your holiness. Now, (laughs) I'll be the first to tell you that if you ever hear that from someone, that's a lie. All right? How many of you have heard of Oswald Chambers? 
I bet some of you have is uh, my utmost first highest right next to your bed, your bed today. Huh? I know I did at one point. Now, Oswald Chambers uh, has a quote where he says, Holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of man. I'll say that again. Holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of man. Does that sound oddly familiar? It should. We're Presbyterians, right? So what is the first question and answer in the Shorter Catechism? Look at you. Look at you. And the answer... Look at you, Sarah. Woo! Good job. Good job. That is correct. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that is radically different than what Chambers believes is the chief end of man. On one hand, we have uh, Mr. Chambers saying that holiness is the chief end of man. And on the other hand, we have the catechism saying that glorifying God and enjoying him in fellowship is man's chief end. Now, don't get me wrong. God does want us to be holy. He commands it in the scriptures, and he demands a holy life from his people. Uh, But he also wants his people to be a happy, joyous bunch. God does care about your, your happiness. If he didn't, he wouldn't have commanded us to be joyful. We're not supposed to pit joy and holiness against each other. Comments like those of Chambers are what give people a misunderstanding of Christianity. I've heard countless preachers, or people I should say, say that, well, I don't want to become a Christian because once I do, the fun's over, right? Fun's over, I'm not going to be happy, I'm going to live this dull life. And that's because of comments like this from not only Chambers but other other people. Um, People just have a, a... misunderstanding what Christianity really is. So, if understood and practiced biblically, becoming a Christian will bring you more joy than you ever had before. Now, I can almost hear someone saying, okay, okay, I know what you're saying, Herman, but how can God command me to be joyful when I continue to experience so much pain and suffering in my life? This seems to be counterintuitive. Well, how in the world am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of suffering? Now, the answer is we're not. God doesn't expect us to rejoice at the loss of a loved one or when our health goes south or when we lose our job or when we experience divorce. He knows that those are painful experiences which bring much sorrow and heartache. About this time, two years ago, I had a four-month period where... Um, I, I was a little confused as to what was going on, what God was doing in my life. Um, my health had gone south, and my condition was prolonged to where I had to resign from my job because I couldn't attend my job because of my health issues. So I resigned from my job thinking, okay, I, I, I have enough money in my account to kind of get me by until I get another job. Well, two weeks after resigning from my job, I get a lien put on my bank account. All my money is gone. All right? Now, two months later after that, my mother passes away. So within four months, I'm unemployed. 
I have no money. Uh, my health is down the drain. And now I'm having to make uh, arrangements for my mother's funeral. Now, that was a very trying time in my life. And the only thing that sustained me during that time was the grace of God, obviously. But I had to make a deliberate choice to fix my eyes on Jesus and what lied behind or after that suffering. All right, so <clears throat> God's intention in allowing suffering in our lives is to redirect, our, to redirect the source of our joy from our circumstances to Jesus. I want you to listen to what three New Testament writers have to say about joy and suffering. All right, let's start with Peter. Peter, in his epistle, first epistle says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right, now peep game from James. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Finally, let's see what Paul has to say. Paul in Romans says, though him, or through him, Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So all three of these apostles are basically saying the same thing. Our joy should not be predicated upon our present circumstances. We must look beyond our temporal trials and tribulations and fix our eyes on Jesus and what lies beyond this life. Now John Calvin, in his commentary, what sermon would be complete without a quote from Calvin, right? <laughs> Calvin, in his commentary, says, By full joy... John expresses more clearly the complete and perfect happiness which we obtain through the gospel. At the same time, he reminds the faithful where they ought to fix all their affections. Whoever really perceives what fellowship with God is will be satisfied with it alone and will no more burn with desires for other things. Focusing our joy on the gospel on Jesus and our eternal fellowship with the Father is the only way that we will ever experience joy to the fullest, regardless of our present trials and tribulations. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews, in his epistle, or in his letter, tells us, or encourages us, when he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, knowing that he was going to endure what he was going to endure at the cross, was able to look beyond that, and that's what gave him joy, knowing that he was going back to the Father, sitting at his right hand. Not only that, he was going to bring in his bride, his people. All right, now, um, let's see here. Richard Phillips uh, writes concerning that Hebrews passage. Jesus also looked forward to his future reunion with the Father in heaven and to receiving his delight with the greatest of joy. He rejoiced at the knowledge of what his suffering and death would accomplish, namely the redemption of a people for himself. In short, Jesus rejoiced because he saw the crown beyond the cross. He saw the purchase of his blood, even the church that would be his bride forever in the regenerated glory of the endless age to come. We should rejoice at trials because by enduring, we gain the crown that waits beyond the cross. That, that is amazing. So Paul in his epistle to Timothy tells Timothy that God has given us all things to enjoy, right? So there's nothing wrong with enjoying your family, your children, your career. God has given given us those things to enjoy. But when those things are the source of our joy, we are going to be sorely disappointed. If you put your, your focus on these temporal things of this life, you're going to be sorely disappointed when they're taken away from you. All right? <clears throat> so, according to John, our joy will only be full when we establish it in our fellowship, not only with one another, but fellowship with God and His Son. And it all begins by placing your trust in Him. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy that you bestow upon us each and every day. Father, we ask this day that you would empower us by your spirit to be doers of your word and not simply hearers of it. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.